and welcome to another episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. The mission of my blog and this podcast is to share my passion for live theater, review productions without plot spoilers, and hopefully inspire you to see a new play, a new musical, or a theater company that you haven't attended before. My goal is for you to get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am New York City-based, but often review productions in other cities. I also write for the website Broadway World under my name, but my blog and this podcast chronicle every show I attend. This monthly podcast is available for free subscription on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcast. Today, I'm going to share my observations for those shows I attended during the month of February 2020. The three Broadway shows I saw this month are David Byrne's American Utopia, A Soldier's Play, and The Revival of West Side Story. I also finally caught Matthew Bourne's Swan Lake, which had a return engagement at New York City Center. From off and off-off Broadway, I'm going to tell you about productions at the Theater for the New City, The Tank, WP Theater, The Mint Theater, the Transport Group, and Dixon Place. And speaking of Dixon Place, one of the productions I'm reviewing there was called Burnt Out Wife, created by and starring Sarah Julie. She stopped by for an interview, and that will also be on this month's episode. Furthermore, an extremely engaging, voluntarily immersive experience, a cocktail party social experiment. I'd like to tell you about that one as well as the smash hit current off-Broadway revival of Little Shop of Horrors. Let's begin this episode with a visit to off-off-Broadway's arts incubator, The Tank. The title of this piece, Really, Really Gorgeous. The time is soon. The atmosphere is dystopian. Two young ladies, obviously a romantic couple, are huddled on the couch in their sloppy shack, Canned goods and other junk are strewn all over the floor. Nothing visual suggests things are really, really gorgeous. A television announcer claims otherwise. She is emotional about the incredible sunset today. America has been underwater for five years and 114 days. Before she gets to the news, a moment of silence. We lost Portland, Maine. Think about that. Then she reels off a list of lost American cities and states. Finally, she adds, the Pacific time zone. Think about that. But, she implores, look at the new world which has been created. A world which is really, really, really beautiful. The announcer lives in complete contradiction to the environment Marr and Penn are enduring. There is a reluctance to open the door and go outside. They are sick and tired of eating rations of SpaghettiOs. Whirlpools are sucking more people into their deaths. In Nick Mesikowski's vividly imagined play, climate change is really, really real. And really, really bad. This announcer has big news. The President of the United States wants to hear from her citizens. A contest is planned 
where two winners will be chosen. Singing, dancing, poetry, music, sports, singing, dancing, any talent you can dream of, should be submitted by midnight. Both ladies are writers and plan to enter the contest. The grand prize? An invitation to live in America's new capital city, Cleveland, Ohio. Streets are dry and the sky is high in Cleveland. They even have restaurants there like Applebee's. What a dream it will be to win a spot to change your life. How bad is it in America now? The women are watching an episode of American Idol. A singer is cut down for being awful. The announcer promises another try, advising, Just fix your lungs, okay? Horrendous-looking algae sucking then occurs. The women hate watching this part. It's disgusting, but it's supposed to be good for you. This play sets itself up quickly and firmly to create a comedic take on the future world ruined by rising waters. It is indeed hilarious to read about the Army Corps of Engineers designing a seawall for New York City while many in Washington and in the media deny climate change is real. That's not in the play, but in our news. It is also indeed hilarious to read that Texas and Florida have submitted proposals for federal grants to combat rising sea levels without referring to the cause. In this bizarre time, Mr. Mesakowski wants to make us laugh. We need it. Our outrage over the imbecilic denial of scientists' learned reasoning, however, makes us mad. This playwright has not simply created a comedy, no matter how much we snicker at the exaggerated and believable antics in his wild story. There is a potent criticism of our society's embrace of celebrity and failure of government which drives the plot. As written, the play could be even better, but it is never uninteresting. The announcer is portrayed by Gazelle Le Bougant as a recognizable loudmouthed Oprah Winfrey. The mania of her speech and her self-absorption are skewered mercilessly in a delicious performance. This Oprah even gets to use the F-word. She hilariously proclaims her burden of infinite wisdom. Like our real-life version, she wields tremendous power and uses it like all domineering puppeteers do. The announcer rants, Can you see this with your eyes, you myopic idiots? Ms. Gant is perfection in the role. In a three-character play, which includes a contest on page one, there is no surprise when the winner is chosen. How else would one be able to get past the walls which now surround Cleveland to keep the undesirables out? The plot, however, cleverly swirls as the government and the media begin the spin cycle. Mr. Mesakowski has a dim view of America, or, better said, he views Americans as dim-witted. With that approach, he has conceived a play to make us laugh at ourselves and our basis instincts of self-survival and self-promotion. Sophie Becker and Amber Janai are effective in the roles of Penn and Marr. Their chemistry is evident. Both are devious in their own way. The character of Marr could probably use a little more edge considering the road she will travel. Penn's road, on the other hand, is a farcical dream. 
kudos to Alice Tavener, who designed the memorable costumes. What will we be wearing post-apocalyptic flood? If our billionaire manages to survive this flood, I'm sure we'll read about that in O Magazine. Nick Vesakowski's new play has some dry patches and is not perfect. This playwright, though, has a really, really gorgeous imagination, and his ideas have been nicely staged by director Miranda Heyman. Recommended for fans of Topical Fun is really, really gorgeous, the play. Next, I'll go downtown to the theater for The New City, and a new play, a period piece, entitled Brocade. In the early 17th century, Venice was an international hub of commerce, finance, and legalized prostitution. Brocade takes place in this hedonistic world. Prostitution was legal as an undesirable but preferred alternative to the rampant homosexuality at the time. City leaders believed the sight of women's breasts would convert the men. In the red light district, whores were allowed and even encouraged to bear their bosoms. This action took place at the now infamous Ponte della Tette, translated as Bridge of Tits. In his new play, Robert E. DiNardo uses this promising period to amuse and titillate. Pun unavoidable. Countess Felicita Bonini runs an orphanage which has a cupboard on the outside. A new novice is told to check it every half hour so the babies don't die there. This location is where the prostitutes drop off their unwanted offspring. Yes, this is a comedy. Orazio grew up in this orphanage and took a keen interest in sewing. His abilities had to be improved over time. He cut himself so often that the nuns began calling him Little Stigmata. Older now, Orazio works with the Countess's sister Bianca, making dresses for the whores. The clientele is huge, and his work is considered the best. As you may surmise, Orazio is far from closeted in this Venice and openly wears his creations. When he was young, he wore the nun's habits in order to break them in. The plot machinations get underway when an 85-year-old matriarch from the Royal Society asks him to design her a dress. Should he walk away from the enormous market and design for the cheapskate rich folk? He considers these alternatives while in bed with his lover, Mustat, an older man. In the play's finest acting scene, the two discuss the drama after an obvious interlude. Mustat is a black man from Africa who was brought to Venice. His backstory is beautifully detailed, making this character the richest and most complex. Jacob Silburn is excellent in the role of this intelligent and accomplished survivor. Bianca desperately wants to work on the royal outfit. She deserves a little thrill, as she is now an elderly virgin. Her sister runs the highly regarded convent. She turned its misfortunes around. The Franciscan friar, previously in charge, was burned at the stake. Twelve nuns gave birth within one year thanks to the Randy priest. Apparently that was too much intrigue for a city with over 11,000 whores. Enter Agostino Amati 
the stud. Or rather, the used-to-be stud, who has aged considerably since his wildly known exploits with females all over Europe. He now has secretive business dealings with the powerful of Venice. He even had a fling with our convent innkeeper back in the day. With a noisy novice skulking through the nunnery, you have all the makings for a delightful screwball comedy. Under the direction of Shalazaregos, the play suffers from bad pacing and some performances which do not reach broadly enough. The entire scenario is hilarious, and the story's twists and turns are very enjoyable. It seems impossible to be bored with an enticing combination of gays, whores, nuns, and a gigolo. If truth be told, boredom sets in frequently. The opening of the second act is a noticeable example of a funny scene which isn't staged fast enough. There are two separate conversations happening. Pauses between them sap all momentum. In addition, one character has witty asides and makes comments to the audience. Everything falls flat despite the good setup. As the has-been Agostino, Gene Santarelli comes very close to creating the buffoon. It's a performance laced with an excess of twinkle toeisms, so believing he was the virile stud is a tad difficult. Therefore, when he dons a dress, it's less humorous than it could be. He was amusing overall, though, and the performance style of hammy thespian was a solid choice. Ethel and Friend was also quite enjoyable as the virginal Bianca, and her myriad of facial expressions were fun to watch. The play felt too long, but admittedly, this endurance test was made more difficult than necessary. The laughs were there in the script. The story was a good one. I loved the upward and downward juxtaposition of women's roles. Brocade considers how one might think in order to manage their life at this particular time. Unfortunately, the audience was in a coma for the majority of the performance. I might be able to recommend the play Brocade, but definitely not this production. For those of you who listened last month, I covered a dance performance from Complexion's Contemporary Ballet. I was invited back to see another program, and this is my review. After having seen and reviewed Program A from Complexion's Contemporary Ballet, I happily returned for Program C. The first half of this performance was entitled Essential Parts, These seven pieces were a compilation from the company's repertoire and included one world premiere. Dear Friedrich was choreographed to the brisk piano sonatas composed by Friedrich Chopin. This dance was performed by the company. My interpretation saw members in a dance class showing off their skills. Displaying the athletic range of this group, this excerpt from 2007 was a fine opening. Testament followed with an urgent a cappella rendition of Amazing Grace. Daniela O'Neill and Craig Dion were clutching each other with intensity and heightened urgency. Elegy was the only premiere and featured the spectacular Gillian Davis in a solo piece set to Beethoven. The mood was somber and reflective. The final image before the lights went down capped off a beautifully introspective piece. Woke, from 2019, 
was the next dance. The company was back on stage to perform this segment, and I will await another full production in the future. Brandon Gray then danced Wonderful from 1994. This solo featured the Stevie Wonder song, All in Love is Fair. Mr. Gray begins the dance with an open shirt. Mr. Wonder's lyrics remind us that love's a crazy game and relationships are win-or-lose propositions. By the end of the dance, his shirt comes off and becomes a symbolic prop with which he dances. An excerpt from Bach 25 from Program A followed. The final dance in this half was called On Holiday. This 2010 work wowed the audience. Billy Porter longingly and plaintively sings Billy Holiday's My Man, Mon Homme. The lyrics provide direction for the dance, such as, Two or three girls has he that he likes as well as me, but I still love him. Dwight Roden choreographed each selection in essential parts. The assortment nicely displays his styles. This type of dance is athletic and accessible. This is a company to put on your list if you want to experience a dance performance. Frankly, it seems impossible not to love this troupe. At a minimum, the music and the technical quality of the dances with their muscular athleticism are bound to impress and hold your attention. The second half of Program C was Love Rocks, featuring the music of Lenny Kravitz. I saw this world premiere as part of Program A, and it was sensational again. In my notebook, I wrote that the transitions were, quote, so damn fun to watch. This time around, the duet between Larissa Gersk and Craig Dion stood out for me as particularly mesmerizing. Complexion's contemporary dance has performances scheduled in the following U.S. cities in upcoming months. Escondido, California, New Brunswick, New Jersey, Stores, Connecticut, Park City, Utah, Columbus, Georgia, Irmo, South Carolina, and Detroit, Michigan. Complexion's Contemporary Dance is also scheduled to tour Latvia and Lithuania this spring and is setting up residence in various German cities throughout the summer. They're going to be touring Germany for seven weeks. Worth your time to seek them out. Complexion's Contemporary Dance is a fine dance theater company. My first visit this month to Dixon Place was for a puppet show called Packrat. Concrete Temple Theater is a multidisciplinary company committed to creating compelling new theatrical works. Begun in 2004, they incorporate drama, dance, puppetry, music, and visual arts. In their mission statement, they focus on presenting works that address real issues within communities, such as grief, family relationships, and environmental stewardship. PACRAT falls into the latter category. Bud is the title character, and he, like all of this cast, are puppets of various styles. He is a PACRAT. Bud collects human treasures found on the desert floor. Humans know them better as litter or forgotten items casually tossed aside. A silver spoon and an opened bag of marshmallows play important roles in the story. A faceless cowboy exuberantly drives through these creatures' homeland in his car, 
This puppet is very amusing. He is built larger than life, as would be the size view from an animal's perspective. He dons an enormous cowboy hat and a lit cigar. An ash falls into the dry grasses and sets the land ablaze. Puppet animals start to scatter amidst the devastation. Judgmental squirrels believe Bud's hoarding of human treasures is the cause of the fire. Such activity is illegal, they remind. The humans are obviously mad. The squirrels want Bud banned. Their leader is a jackrabbit named Firestone who is Bud's friend. He sleeps to think of a solution. One is revealed through a dream. Firestone tells Bud that he needs to search for Artemisia, a land of big sagebrush. This is the place where there will be no humans. It must be found for the benefit of all. Bud attempts to take all of his belongings on this journey, but there are too many trinkets to carry. He has to narrow it down to the most important treasure. Oh, the choices! The relocation adventure then begins. René Filippi is the writer and director of Packrat. The story is a simple one, exposing the harm caused by humans unconcerned and unconnected with their impact on the environment. This tale is obviously a microcosm of larger issues concerning environmental damage and blatant disregard for nature. The focus here on the act of one person's carelessness stresses the point of each and everyone's responsibility to the land and its inhabitants. The story of Packrat is simple and sweet. Three of us attended this production together, and we all found some moments oddly confusing. Determining which rat puppet was the main character was not always crystal clear. The puppets themselves are an interesting visual blend of styles. Carlo Adinolfi designed the puppetry, projections, and set. Some animals appear as suggested forms with exposed rib cages. When burrowing owls run across the floor, their feet rapidly tap on the floor. This moment is delightful and just makes you smile. Another style of puppet uses outlines to suggest dreamlike forms and reminded me of dried palm fronds. The set is composed of curved sculptures which functions as blades of grass. They are moved around as location changes require. The puppeteers are visible but clad in black clothing. They add vocals to the soothing voiceover narration by Vera Baron. Packrat is an enjoyable little tale, probably best suited to children given the simplistic themes and good-natured vibe. The creative elements, however, do provide some whimsical moments that will appeal to anyone who admires artistic inventiveness. After completing its performance at Dixon Place in February, the show traveled to the Flint Repertory Theater in Michigan for a weekend run. Matthew Bourne's Swan Lake is the next production I'd like to talk about. Subtitled The Legend Returns, Matthew Bourne's Swan Lake is back in New York for the third time. Twenty years ago, this show ran on Broadway and won three Tony Awards for costumes, direction, and choreography. This is my first encounter with this production. The accolades are deserved. This hybrid ballet and wordless musical theater piece 
is awesome. Mr. Bourne's version of Tchaikovsky's ballet is famous for changing the swans to men. The original story is one of a prince and a princess. She has been converted into a swan by an evil sorceress. That detail, and others, are eliminated here to make way for an exuberant and modern take on this story. In the first scene, the prince is asleep in his bedroom. Above his head appears a half-naked man from his dream, the future swan. There's no mystery about the prince's internal leanings, but he dutifully attempts to fulfill his birthright expectations. He will date, quote, the girlfriend, a ditzy blonde prototype. Katrina Linden is brilliant and hilarious in the part. A trip to the opera house is a clever show-within-a-show conceit. Miss Linden steals the scene with her crass behavior in the royal box. Speaking of royals, the queen, an excellent Nicole Cabrera, has no husband and seems to be interested in her guards. She is a cold mother. Sub-zero temperature. A scene occurs in the prince's private quarters and she recoils at his display of weakness. They dance, but the effect is a combination of touching and heartbreaking. She demands he keep a stiff upper lip and remain resolute and unemotional when facing adversity. She concludes her visit as the prince is looking in the mirror. Mom pulls his shoulders back to the required posture. I have never seen Swan Lake before, and I've only seen few classic ballets. In this staging, the storytelling and acting are so strong that the main characters emerge as multidimensional emotional beings. The wit and modern spin go into full speed when the prince heads to a seedy nightclub called the Swank Bar. He leaves dejected and forlorn, walking to a city park. On a bench, under a streetlight, the prince writes a suicide note. Under a beautiful full moon, he approaches the lake. A very muscular male swan appears. The prince is mesmerized. The dancing ensues. More swans appear. The choreography accentuates swan movements, most notably in numerous arm positions. To be honest, I am not a ballet aficionado, and this segment went on a little long for my tastes. The lead swan appeared to be the alpha of the bunch. After intermission, media stand behind red velvet ropes. A royal ball is about to occur. Shots are poured and consumed. The dancing is hot. Princesses from many countries are present. When the Italian princess dances, there's no mistaking which one she is. Then the stranger appears. He is the swan, only now clad in black leather pants. The ladies are agog. The queen is agog. Their male escorts are irritated. The prince is, to say the very least, jealous. This party is filled with tensions everywhere. Erotic tensions between men and women, and also between men and men. The entertainment soars. If the swan at the city park appeared to be the alpha, the black swan that swoops in and oozes sex appeal confirms the initial diagnosis and then some. In the performance I saw, 
Max Westwell performed The Swan and the Stranger. He was outstanding. All of the principal dancers were excellent. As the prince, a sublime James Lovell, delivered a beautifully nuanced character study. The inner turmoil was transparent and distressing. The final scene is a visual and emotional masterpiece. While Matthew Bourne's conception for this Swan Lake is arresting, the execution is superb. The direction and clarity of storytelling is superior to the vast majority of Broadway musicals. The spectacularly large yet simple set design frames the grandeur of royalty. The costumes are playful and gorgeous. Both were memorably designed by Les Brotherston. Paul Constable's lighting is also top-notch. The movie Billy Elliot, about a boy who wanted to be a dancer, ends with his performing The Swan in this show. This artistic company tours the United Kingdom and internationally with a number of different productions. If given the opportunity, I won't wait another 20 years to see the next one. Matthew Bourne's Swan Lake concluded its run at New York City Center in February. In the United Kingdom, his new adventures company is now touring The Red Shoes, and a Nutcracker revival is planned for the 2020 holiday season. And finally, who knew there was a show made out of the movie Edward Scissorhands? Can we beg for a revival? Now I'd like to change direction completely and tell you about a kid's show called Taste the Clouds. New York City Children's Theater commissioned Hit the Lights Theater Company to create a production for young audiences. Taste the Clouds is a breezy 30-minute exploration of whimsical notions to trigger the imagination. The story is based on Rita Marshall's book of the same name. The targeted age range is two to five years old. The children in the audience ranged from fidgety but engaged to focused and riveted on the action. In the lobby, cast members interact with the kids as they arrive. Make sure you get your imagination paintbrush over there. A really cool activity table is where the children decorate their paintbrushes with stickers. The table is toddler height and portends the level of smart details which follow. There are plenty of chairs for the adults in the theater. Kids are encouraged to sit on the floor. A sheet is the magic canvas. Some children sat with their parents or on their laps. Others plop themselves front and center. The first item on the agenda? Quote, raise your hands if this is the first time you've ever been to a play, ever been to the theater before. This initial feel-good vibe never wanes. Hit the Lights uses shadow puppetry projected onto a screen in this show. I saw their production of Dungeon at Ars Nova in 2018. Similarly, action occurs on screen and in front with the actors. Rain comes down in the form of musical notes. A dog is outside looking up at the clouds. Buddy appears in the form of a two-piece animal. His head is manipulated in one hand with his body in the other. One child stood up and gently poked Buddy in the nose. He sneezed. The moment was adorable. Buddy also provided some structure. 
When one child left the magic canvas and joined the actors, Buddy pointed his nose back to the sitting area, which seemed to do the trick. After all, it was time to take the imaginary paintbrushes and touch the stars. We did it! Exploration is on the agenda in Taste the Clouds. A girl rides an owl into the sky. The projected puppetry shows the flight and then changes the perspective to a close-up. The zooming in from larger imagery to detailed visuals is effectively used throughout. The puppet show is fun and appropriately simple. The questions posed are more surreal. Do you believe I can listen to colors? The children are then asked, what's your favorite color? Pink is the first one yelled out. Then a child adds, rainbow. One of the actors comments that rainbow is a solid choice. Little imaginations are pressed into listening to the blue flower. Purple was tricky. Fruits will be added to a cauldron. Our heroine dons a scuba mask and she and Buddy dive in. Swirling inside is a psychedelic soup. All that smelling and swimming made me hungry. The story quickly moves on and the children seemed attentive as a result. There was a nice balance of watching and participating which kept interest high. When the children paint the sky, a slice of pizza is seen floating. There will be dumplings and donuts. Buddy excitedly eats everything and then turns into an exaggeratedly bloated dog. This warning about overeating is very funny. By the show's end, you will believe it is possible to smell a rainbow, taste the clouds, see the music, and listen to the moon. Exiting the theater, the cast is available for photos. The five performers, both in front of and behind the curtain, strike a nice tone to engage the children without using baby talk. At the end, the children are told, we are honored for this being your first play. Taste the Clouds is a sunny introduction to the world of magical invention in the theater and in the mind. The kids look like they had a fun time. From their seat, the clouds were very tasty. Taste the Clouds will be performed on Sundays at the Flea Theater through April 26th. Now I'd like to tell you about the next production at WP Theater, an off-Broadway house. The name of this play, Where We Stand. Free coffee and donuts are available on the stage when you arrive to help determine where we stand. Audience members are the citizens for this town hall meeting. The setting is sparse and realistic. House lights never go down. Everyone's face is visible and present. There is a decision to make. Playwright Donetta Lavinia Grays begins the show humming from the rear of the theater. As she slowly descends the stairs on her way to the stage, audience members are joining in with her. She is connecting with them. The community is coming together. Or is it being manipulated? I cannot be sure which is the right interpretation. That may be the point. Ms. Grays portrays man. An exile on the edge of town is seeking forgiveness. He has sold the community to the devil in exchange for glory. He achieves that by successfully building up the town. Various townsfolk offer testimonies. 
This fable is portrayed with music, humor, and a great deal of soul-searching. Will the town be merciful to the man or choose justice instead? The story is told with extremely poetic and non-linear language. Characters jump in and out. Songs are sung. Ms. Grays makes direct eye contact with individuals. Her eyes bore into you as she brings you on a journey toward the boat. She is unquestionably a compelling presence. Many in the audience clapped and hummed as they were swept up into the narrative. Others were more restless. One woman could not take it any longer. She was trapped in the second row. Rather than ask everyone to let her out, she escaped by sliding over the first row, which had a couple of empty seats. She stood up defiantly and angrily. The house lights were all on. There was only one person on the stage. The two individuals were standing about ten feet apart. It was hideously uncomfortable. An unexpected sign of our times manifested itself. A little later, the woman's companion elected to travel the same route to the exit. In a way, this distraction colored my interpretation of the story. A grand personality swaying the townspeople to a conclusion. The failure to listen to words that may not be what one wants to hear. Miss Gray's performance is excellent, so it has to be the lyrical poetry which failed to engage those two from their discourteous behavior. Then again, isn't America now all about discourteous behavior? Like Trump's tweets insulting whomever got under his skin that day? Or maybe Bernie Sanders' followers attacking supporters of other Democratic presidential candidates? I saw both of these examples on social media the day I wrote my review. This unfortunate yet spontaneous theatrical moment deepened the connection between this play and our reality. As directed by Tamilla Woodard, the play is both dreamlike and riveting, an odd balance. The townspeople are listening to arguments. A decision will have to be made. Will you participate when called? This show is definitely not straightforward. Some character transitions are less clear than others. The playwright is asking us to listen in her way. Like reaching across the aisle in politics, that willingness is not universally possible. Where we stand is clearly not for everyone. Donetta Lavinia Gray's commanding performance is, however, completely engrossing and vividly theatrical. In our times, town halls are still utilized to convince and conjole opinion. It's up to you to decide where you stand. Where We Stand was performed at the WP Theater and closed on March 1st. Their pipeline festival of new and developing plays begins at the end of the month. They will be putting on five plays in five weeks. That's the WP Theater on the Upper West Side. Now I'd like to discuss the first of three Broadway shows on this month's podcast. First up, David Byrne's American Utopia. I remember going to a midnight screening of Jonathan Demme's concert film, Stop Making Sense, in 1984. I was a huge fan of the New York band Talking Heads, which successfully emerged out of the New York punk rock new wave scene in the 1970s. There is no possible way to estimate 
how many times I listened to the album Remain in Light. I finally got around to catching David Byrne's American Utopia during the final week of its Broadway run. This supremely stylized concert opens with Mr. Byrne seated at a table and contemplating a plastic brain. He delves into neural connection theory, noting that our brains become less functioning as we age. He asks, does this mean babies are smarter than us and we get stupider as we grow older? Unlike Bruce Springsteen's spectacular Broadway memoir, this piece is a concert with a few musings inserted along the way. The mood is unadulterated joy. He and his musicians are all wearing gray suits. Their feet are bare. Instruments are carried marching band style. For fans of halftime shows, the percussion is exultant. Voting is an important message as demonstrated by the registration table in the lobby. Mr. Byrne comments on the 55% turnout for national elections and the 20% number in local ones. The average age in those contests is 57. Lighting shines on 20% of the audience to punctuate the point. The concert moves on to the next gloriously staged song, but the point is made simply, quickly, and effectively. In the most serious section, he informs that he asked Janelle Monet if he could cover her song, Hell You Tombout, despite being an older white male. She agreed. This version was the closest this concert got to anger, with the repeated phrasing of African-American victims of racial violence. The lyric Trayvon Martin is followed by Say His Name. Mr. Byrne implored the crowd to join in, which was only partially successful. That moment was powerful, but reminded me of the Springsteen show. In that one, certain audience members were hoping for a sing-along show of greatest hits. Bruce had other ideas in mind. David Byrne's American Utopia is certainly much more of a feel-good concert, and the big hits Once in a Lifetime and Burning Down the House are explosive. In between smiles and joy, however, playful seriousness lurks before quickly returning to a happier place, the imagined utopia of the title. On the stage is a striking three-sided curtain of hundreds of metal chains. The lighting designed by Rob Sinclair is endlessly inventive and often highly dramatic, despite rarely using color. The palette of this show is silver and gray, like its star. Mr. Byrne is the elder statesman performing to his flock. Is this concert a symbolic utopia? If you consider the outstanding orchestrations for this 12-person ensemble, the answer is yes. When you add in the phenomenally interesting and unique choreography by Annie B. Parson, Utopia becomes an understatement. Marching band meets David Byrne meets funk and dabbles in rock. Somehow the physical movement tops everything and you cannot peel your eyes away. Many songs from his whole career catalog are included in this show. From Remain in Light, I was thrilled to hear a superb rendition of Born Under Punches, The Heat Goes On. Consider this line today. Take a look at these hands. The hand speaks, the hand of a government man. Could there be any more appropriate thought bubble in our increasingly fragile democracy? As Mr. Byrne brilliantly demonstrates, have your fun, but pay attention and vote.
David Byrne's American Utopia did close in February. However, they have announced that they are returning to Broadway on September 18th. In the meanwhile, this past weekend, David Byrne and the company performed two numbers from their show, scaled down in size, obviously, but they did perform two numbers on Saturday Night Live. Next up, the Roundabout Theater production of A Soldier's Play. Charles Fuller won a Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 1982 for A Soldier's Play, which was originally staged off-Broadway by the Negro Ensemble Company. That cast included Adolph Caesar, Denzel Washington, David Allen Greer, and Samuel L. Jackson. Mr. Caesar was Oscar-nominated in the film adaptation A Soldier's Story, which received additional nominations for Best Picture and Screenplay. That's quite the pedigree which precedes this first Broadway production. David Allen Greer returns to this story, now in the pivotal role of Sergeant Vernon C. Waters. At the start of the play, he is drunk and laughing. He yells, they still hate you. He is shot to death. What follows is a police procedural to determine the killer or killers. A soldier's play is set in Fort Neal, Louisiana in 1944, near the end of the Second World War. This is a segregated fort. The enlisted black men are under the watch of a white captain, played by Jerry O'Connell. They complain about the menial jobs they are given. A comment is made about being lucky enough to get shipped out of this hellhole to the war. Outside the base, the Ku Klux Klan looms, but racism is omnipresent within as well. The assumption is that the sergeant was murdered by the KKK deep in the heart of the Jim Crow South. A black officer, Captain Richard Davenport, portrayed by Blair Underwood, that officer has been assigned to this investigation. Naturally, the presiding white officer objects and attempts to derail the process. In a series of interviews and flashbacks, the captain will get to the bottom of this mystery. As staged by director Kenny Leon, this play captured my attention from start to finish. The ensemble work of the entire cast breathed palpable life into this production. While the play may seem dated as compared to this year's mind-blowing Slave Play by Jeremy O'Harris, there are obvious reasons it remains relevant. Racism is hardly a historical footnote in America. Injustice lives and breathes in our government, in the prison industrial complex, and in the deeply rooted attitudes of countless millions. What drives this play is not simply conflict between black and white men. There is a very fine scene when Captain Davenport interviews two white men who are on guard the evening of the murder. Their disgust at having to answer to a black man is not surprising, but the effectiveness of how this new territory plays out is tightly wrought drama. The soul of this play lies within the enlisted men. They have an easy camaraderie in the barracks and on their winning baseball team. Their black superior officer, Sergeant Waters, treats them like garbage. Waters' racism is a complicated blend of self-loathing and aspirational whiteness. He has begun to climb the white man's ladder and has definite ideas for his children's future. Mr. Greer is utterly convincing in this juicy, juicy role. Everyone on the stage has a reason to dislike him, either from their inbred racism 
or their hatred of his condemnation of his own kind. His murder has many suspects. The police procedural part of this play is somewhat old-fashioned, but completely entertaining. Blair Underwood is terrific as the investigating captain. He is a black man with power. He wears his pride on his sleeve. His nuanced performance hinted at the battle scars he must have encountered on his rise. He does not back down, ever. That skill had to be mastered. Unlike the white captain who runs the fort, he had to be exceptional to get as far as he did. That comparison registers nicely. The matinee idol torso flash, which opens the second act, is the only misstep. A soldier's play is not a masterpiece, but it is a very good drama. This cast is excellent across the board, most notably the grunts. Namdi Asomuga was a standout as Private First Class Melvin Peterson, but each actor created a completely formed character. That makes for entertaining drama. The subject matter remains pertinent nearly 40 years later. The Roundabout Theatre Company's production of A Soldier's Play is running at the American Airlines Theatre through March 15th. Now I'd like to go back even further in time. The Mint Theatre, their new production, Chekhov, Tolstoy, Love Stories. Forgotten plays and playwrights are the mission of the Mint Theatre Company. Their track record of success is as good as any troupe in New York City. Over the past few years, they unearthed writings by Miles Mallison. Both Conflict and Yours Unfaithfully were excellent plays given extraordinary productions. Chekhov Tolstoy Love Stories is a double bill of two short fiction works Mr. Mallison adapted for the stage. The results miss the mark. Shockingly, by a long shot. The first play is The Artist, based on a translation of Anton Chekhov's An Artist's Story. In the garden of a Russian country house, a painter has emerged from five weeks of brooding. Nikov is now ready to start painting after gazing out of ten big windows during that time. Genya, the well-to-do, with-nothing-to-do teenage daughter, pretends to read a book. Both are lazy dreamer types. Genya flirts with the older man. Sister Lydia is the type A overachiever of this home, busily working at a local school and dispensary. Her motto is, there's always more to do than the time to do it. The comparison between the lazy and the motivated are an obvious conflict. Lydia pushes for medical relief centers for the peasants. The painter objects. He prefers poor people should be released from the slavery that society has inflicted on them. As directed by company founder Jonathan Bank, the pace is very slow. This line stood out to me. Why do we lead such a tedious and boring life? The language is also awkward, such as, I'm an artist. I'm peculiar. The adaptation is stilted and the pacing drags. In this dull vacuum, a relationship between the painter and the teenager begins to uncomfortably bloom. Nikov has ideas about a new religion. Alexander Sokovikov makes his U.S. theater debut with this production. His performance of Nikov is the best one of the evening. The angst and the creative vision are well-developed. The characters of the daughters are far less realized. As love interests Genya, Anna Lentz is far too contemporary and did not really develop or display any chemistry with the painter. 
Brittany Anika Liu plays Lydia, and she comes across as a one-dimensional suffragette type spouting lines. Her considerable passion is not evident. There is no intermission between the two plays. Michael, the next one, is based on Tolstoy's What Men Live By. This piece has been directed by Jane Shaw. She has done 31 shows at the Mint as sound designer. This is her first directing role. The play is an allegory which contains some welcome and eerie mysticism. The staging does not accomplish the mood of transformation as required by the script. Simon goes out to buy sheepskin for the upcoming winter cold. He returns without the blanket. Instead, he brings home a naked man he found on the side of the road. Wife Matriona accuses him of a vodka spree. Michael, the arrival, does not speak. When he smiles, however, it's as if the sun shined behind his eyes. One year later, Michael is now an excellent shoemaker and helping to grow the family business and fortunes. The ever-present creepiness of the man continues. He seems to be able to see the future. Unlike the artist, this second play looks back and embraces old religion rather than seeking something new. Themes of penitence and spiritual learning are considered. That level of mystery and religious imagery is not realized at a high enough level. Malik Reed portrays Michael at first as if he were Lenny in Of Mice and Men. The script calls for a magical reckoning of spiritual otherworldliness. In this staging, there does not seem to be any dimensions beyond a basic telling of the story. Without the magic, the plot simply proceeds and ends. There's a decent tale buried in the short play, Michael, about kindness, repentance, and love. This lukewarm attempt did not make a case for needing this revival. Chekhov Tolstoy Love Stories is playing at Theater Row through March 14th. As you can tell, I see and review a lot of shows, and sometimes people reach out to me and say, give this one a try. Here's one where I'm very happy I said yes, I'll give that one a shot. The title, A Cocktail Party Social Experiment. The one-page program announces, A Cocktail is a Beautiful Thing, in capital letters. Quote, it transcends its base ingredients to become something new and exciting. The theatrical event, A Cocktail Party Social Experiment, is also a beautiful thing. The premise is simple. Invite some friends over, pour some drinks, and play a game. If the moon is aligned, meaningful conversations will emerge. Happy people will return to their homes invigorated, refreshed, and just a little bit more connected to their fellow earthlings. Based on a real game he co-created, Will Petre hosts, essentially, the playing of a game on stage at the Chelsea Music Hall. In his introduction, he notes that all you need is a beautiful living room, delicious cocktails, a banging playlist, party guests, and his cocktail party game. The mission is to create an analog experience. Phones down, all. Fair disclosure. At our home, we host game nights in our apartment, so I'm on board immediately. Nine chairs are placed on the stage. Each is equipped with a microphone. Our host explains the procedure. Each round has a maitre d' and a guest of honor. 
That person picks two cards which determine their conversational question. After they finish, a toast. Then that guest becomes the mater d, and a new volunteer is selected from those wishing to participate. Everyone else in the audience watches and sips away. I enjoyed a drink called the paper plane. Ricardo, the Negroni drinker, came first. Mr. Petre superbly manages a positive tone throughout to foster a safe engagement for all participants. He eases into each conversation lightly with a silly question. Ricardo never eats pizza with a fork and a knife. After receiving his cocktail order, the real question is posed. What is a recent teachable moment you experienced? Ricardo was recently seeing someone who lived in a negative space and seemed to wallow in sadness by choice. The man seemingly had an addiction to sadness. Ricardo shared that he is not a fixer. I'm too irresponsible. Right out of the gate, things were funny and lighthearted, but also a tad serious, yet effortlessly listenable. A follow-up question was then asked. What are you working on for yourself? Clarity was the answer. The older Ricardo gets, the more he wants to keep things simple. Clarity in speaking, he adds, so people cannot superimpose unintended meanings to those words. A toast. The doorbell rings. Enter Beth Champagne. Beth prefers Seinfeld over friends. She's not a bridge burner. There's a downside, she warns. People come in that should have been out. Her fellow bubbly enthusiast, Erin Champagne from San Francisco, pops the cork next. She is asked to describe the beginning. After gulping down her quaff of choice, thoughtful pearls of wisdom emerged. Everyone came from the earth to become millions of people. Treat everyone like a friend of a friend. We all come from the same thing. The admittedly very neurotic Adam Sider arrives before intermission. He tells a story about a co-worker. Quote, he's a faucet, I'm a sponge. A brief intermission to replenish cocktails is followed by the arrival of Zay, one of the bourbon drinks. Marriage is hard, she muses. Why is her current situation her most difficult relationship? All of the others I knew were not going to last. Dirk, tequila and soda, contemplates religion in the afterlife. Olivia, Whiskey Rocks, discusses an unfortunate day at the box. A staff member of that nightclub happened to be in the audience. A baby boomer squealed for information. Erotica would be the gist. Finally, last guest Aiden arrives and is asked, What is your revolution? His answer was, Bernie. Well, that might seem to be an expected response. The fact that we are all listening, rather than talking, allows a person to add nuance and depth of meaning to the quick quip. Think about this insight. A generation not talking about politics and religion has created a generation that does not know how to talk about politics and religion. Aiden believes in the interchange of ideas, it's called a society. The entire evening was fascinating to watch endlessly interesting, and always enjoyable. How do you know if your cocktail party is successful? When I was putting on my coat, 
all of the game participants were enthusiastically conversing on stage. People in the audience were coming up to talk to them and with them. The energy level was very high and not simply fueled by excessive Monday night drinking, I should add. I expect a cocktail party social experiment will catch on big and fast. The actual game is expected to be produced later this year. In the meantime, grab a seat and volunteer to share. Or, better still, listen. Allow people to talk without constant interruption. Theater should always be a place to share fascinating stories and different perspectives. Nearly every person I know, and those from our game nights especially, would find this experience both intellectually stimulating and extremely entertaining. A cocktail party social experiment is currently scheduled for two more performances at Chelsea Music Hall on March 16th and April 13th. For the final Broadway show in this month's podcast, the updated, reconsidered, reimagined revival of West Side Story. The overture begins. When the action starts, a cameraman is filming the performers on stage. Images are projected on the large screen. West Side Story was a reasonable success on Broadway when it opened in 1957. The Academy Award-winning film is the vehicle which projected this musical into classic status. Hiring Evo Van Hove to direct this third major Broadway revival signaled an intent to push the boundaries of what came before. Controversy swirled. Rumors of choreography changes and previews to go back to Jerome Robbins's justifiably praised original. I have never seen a stage production of West Side Story, and my movie memory is positive, but decades old. I eagerly anticipated this revival. From my seat, this version is a mixed bag. Gang members have cell phones, so this revision is clearly an update. The best change relates to the gangs. These are not shiny chorus kids who are brilliant hoofers, although there are some very accomplished dancers on the stage. The sharks and the jets are more menacing here. The American versus Puerto Rican angle has been abandoned for significant diversity on both sides. These gangs are territorial focused rather than ethnically divided. That change enables tensions with police officer Krupke to spotlight racial tensions and draw parallels to dynamics with law enforcement today. Amidst the swirling hormones and turf wars, a contemporary view emerges. Maria and Tony seem to fall deeply in love in three seconds. The core relationship at the center and its intensity is presented but not established in a remotely believable time frame. This choice may be commenting on the pace of coupling today enabled by technology and apps. The whole show takes place over two days. Scenes are time-stamped on the big screen. I presume the information was intended to ratchet up tension. I found that information undermined the storytelling. Did we really demonstrate one hand, one heart that quickly? This West Side Story is largely spellbinding to watch. More than occasionally, however, the stage is barren of set and people. The video projections kick in. 
The locations where Tony and Maria work are rooms visible at the back of the stage. When the cast enters those areas, they essentially leave the stage. The detail within the scenes is pretty cool. If you pull yourself away from the movie, you realize that the very large stage is empty. It's compelling and puzzling at the same time. What is not cool is the song cool, which is the low point of the musical numbers. A number of songs have been cut, including I Feel Pretty, which is not missed at all. Singing is not the strong point of this revival, and the vocal styles are very mixed. That's not necessarily a bad thing. The development of characters and mood are clearly more central in the casting choices. If you come expecting glorious vocals, however, you will be disappointed. Isaac Powell and Shireen Pimentel have nice chemistry as Tony and Maria. Their vocals are mismatched, but that contradiction was additive. I found myself engaged with their story arc. They are the core of this show. Everything around them is busy, but they manage to ground the story when they appear. Mr. Von Hove's use of projections on stage has been escalating. The staging of Network was intense. We watch Brian Cranston melting down on stage and also see the television viewer's perspective. In West Side Story, projections are scenery. The camera rolls down the street as the gang walks. Other times, multiple images are maniacally flashing. The people on stage cannot compete with the overly distracting visual projections. This West Side Story is a gallimaufry. Parts are very engrossing with an updated edginess. Should there be a moratorium on stage rain at this point? Discuss among yourselves. The musical numbers are largely unexceptional. I enjoyed the choreography by Anne Teresa de Kiersmeicher. Hers is not Jerome Robbins at all, but fit the style of this show. The sections of this production which sag give you time to wonder if this is conceptual filmmaking more than a theatrical presentation. That is a stimulating idea, but an empty stage in a grand Broadway house will not be everyone's cup of tea. West Side Story is now playing at the Broadway Theater. Back to the tank I go next. The new play, Birthday in the Bronx. Raquel has a rough life. In Birthday in the Bronx, her character name is Rocky. She's a bruiser of a field hockey player, having collected broken bones and bloody scars. Two noxious sportscasters comment about the atrocious playing conditions. I understand funding is tight, but this field is all muddy. Earlier in the day, girls from a better school look like goddesses. Rocky's talent is noticed, and she receives an offer to play at a rich school near Boston. That school is so white. How white is it? The hockey stick is even white. The first student we meet is named Pretty White Girl. In her opening lines, she blurts, Audits and yachts, followed by Inheritance Offshore and Tennis Camp Au Pair Escrow. The language is exaggerated gobbledygook, but somehow the laughs do not land. Even the teacher spouts gibberish meant to satirize the 1%. She squawks, Board of Directors Heirloom Tomatoes. And she also says, 
Downsize? Ha! Investor relations. Parts of Paul Hufker's new play contain quirky satire. In a world of woke, this story attempts to vilify the non-woke. Teeth, another pretty white girl, cannot have Rocky's birthday party at her house because mom said no. Noam Chomsky might pop by. Rocky doesn't want anything for her big day except for her bones to heal. The pretty white girls play nasty games like peeing in her bed. The cake? Rocky wants Fudgy the whale. Lips insists on a real bakery cake, like the time when Arthur Miller came to my house. In a hyper-satirized environment, that joke might land. Unfortunately for Rocky, home life does not seem significantly better. Her positive exterior covers lots of brokenness. Everyone seems to treat her badly, regardless of race or relation. The sting of what might be an edgy and purposefully uncomfortable comedy instead comes across as a disjointed mean girls. The two men in the radio booth take a walk to Kayville train town where they let us know, in no uncertain terms, that they are racist. Wife Nancy is going to make pink border wool for dinner. The recipe? Cook green card real low and slow. Where are your papers until you've got to stab it with a fork? If anyone does get in over the border wall, just kill them and grill them. That could be sickly funny. That could also be inky dark. In this production, directed by Michaela Escarcega, the scene falls flat. A lamb motif dominates this play. Rocky finds one in a garbage can. A sports announcer reads advertisements for the meat. Rocky's dream sequence feature a Bronx legislator who is represented as a lamb. To be honest, I needed to consult the script to figure that detail out. Another funny line appears. We don't speak Spanish and we don't speak rich, but we're willing to learn rich. Is Rocky internalizing her own guilt about wanting to escape her roots and claw her way, sticks flying, to the greenfield pastures of the 1%? along the way encountering giant swaths of racism in the form of white America? Her childhood roots cloud that potentially ripe target. Everyone just seems so mean. Birthday in the Bronx feels more like a tale of psychological abuse. Her teammates taunt her shouting, Rice and beans, bitch, which says it all. Sigrid Wise gamely portrays all the pretty white girls and therefore the group scene doesn't have the impact as it does on the page. Suzelle Palacios does a nice job traversing the many moods of Rocky. She earns the necessary sympathy. The finest moment of this production is the high-strung closing speech delivered by Evans Formica, one of the heinous white men. Sports metaphors, evil carnivores, societal injustice, sorority hazing, dysfunctional families, violence, racism, and other assorted topics create a very crowded and confusing story. Birthday in the Bronx has some ideas and demonstrated wit as read on the page. This production is far too jumbled and unfocused, however, to make any sense out of this play. Next, I'm going to talk about Burnt Out Wife, which is a performance I saw at Dixon Place. 
But first, three days before I saw that performance, I actually sat down and talked with the creator and star of that piece, Sarah Julie. And here is my interview, uh, which I think provides great backstory for why the piece was created, how it was created, and an inside view of her artistic process. Hi, everyone. I'd like to welcome Sarah Julie to the podcast now to talk about her new show that's going to be opening at Dixon Place uh, called Burnt Out Wife. She's here to tell us about her show, to tell us if she is the burnt out wife or just knows them. <laughs> welcome. Thank Good you to have you here. Thank you for having me. So they say in the press release that it's a comedic dance theater. Can you tell us a little bit more what they mean by comedic dance theater? Yeah, so I have been a dance artist my whole life. And I uh, started uh, 20 years ago to incorporate uh, text in my uh, dance practice. So I have a seamless fusion uh, that fuses movement with text. And about 20 years ago, when I started making uh, these very personal solos that seemed that, I'm sorry, that fused movement with text, and I performed them for audiences, people started uh, laughing. And I thought, well, that's interesting because this is very personal. I didn't think it was funny. Uh, and then I uh, did it enough in my 20s to see that I actually had an innate comedic timing that I didn't actually know I had. So then I started to craft uh, the comedic timing and fusing it with the movement and text-based practice. And now, 20 years later, I've come to expect the laugh. If they don't laugh, <laughs> I, I get annoyed, uh, which is ironic. But uh, So now I make comedic dance theater, which is the seamless fusion of movement and text and humor. So what initially inspired you to make the stories personal? And was it just because they were about you or and you wanted to tell them? Like, how, how did you land on I want to tell a personal story in this format? Yeah, well, I've always been a dance artist. And as a dance artist, I've always, since I was a little girl, felt the need to make dances. Uh, and then I've always um, been very in touch with my emotions and uh, for various reasons actually started therapy when I was very young. And so when I was very young, well before college, I started to find that dance was an outlet where I could express uh, my emotions. Once I went uh, and had a, was a dance major at Skidmore College, and then right after college I moved to New York City to, to dance professionally, I uh, was able to realize that I couldn't separate my love of dance through my need to use dance as a way to tell my personal stories. And so I have a full repertoire of about 15 evening length pieces that I've made over a 20 year history that are all personal topics. And they have come to be become what I call my healing dances. And so I use them as a way to uh, kind of dig deeper into something that's bothering me knowing that whatever's bothering me is bothering a few million other people at the same exactly. time, if not billion. And um, can I, through really going very personal with my own work, help myself first and foremost move past this particular issue, as well as sort of twofold connect to audiences on an aspect of the human experience? Can, can me sharing my story allow other people to relate and, and, and dig in and perhaps find something that can help them move past their own uh, particular issue. 
Well, Burnt Out Wife is certainly a title that says we know what the topic is about. <laughs> I, was, I, I assumed when I saw the title that it was a, a crazy stress environment of how many things have to be accomplished in that role. Yes. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But you tell me kind of how, what was your inspiration for picking this topic yeah. right now? Yeah, I think, you know, I've been with my partner who I love dearly for uh, 17 years now. And we, we do have a beautiful marriage, and I, and I love him very much. However, I recently, as of late, you know, I've been working on this piece for about two years, so, and there was a couple of years before that I was thinking about it in terms of the idea kind of festering and building insofar as, uh, like you said, a little bit of the amount of pressure that is on, I think, you know, women in hetero generally heteronormative relationships where there's a lot of pressure to, you know, fall into traditional gender roles, um, which my relationship does and happened to at a very early age. And I'm now at a place where I'm really questioning, you know, how did I end up with so much on my plate? And like you like the title suggests, really quite fried on that, as well as, you know, looking at the construct of marriage and this idea of you know, uh, this is in the piece where it's like, when I was a little girl, you know, we sort of fantasize what marriage is. And then, of course, you know, Disney and uh, all sorts of cultural appropriations make it make us feel like it's supposed to look one way when we know the reality is actually quite rigorous and challenging and beautiful. But ha- long-term partnerships have a much different look than they're perceived. And so how do we, how, how might I tell the story as almost like a little bit of a cautionary tale to younger generations as well as to my own two daughters of like, you know, <clears throat> marriage isn't all roses. And I know we all know this, but we're I live in an environment in a community where a lot of my peer sets, we don't really talk about the challenges in our relationships and our long-term partnerships. And everything's always supposed to be like great and fabulous and everything's happy and wonderful. And I wanted to create a space where I could complain and yell and cry. And again, still love him. It's not about the shortcomings of my particular partner, although he has his own shortcomings. (laughs) Um, And I have to come to the table with my own shortcomings as well. But really looking at the construct of marriage and could we get to a place culturally where we were able to open up a dialogue that it doesn't have to be so perfect all the time Um, and you know might there be spaces to look at other ways to structure long-term partnerships I don't have the answers in those but knowing that uh, divorce is so cut and dry where it's like you're either married and if it doesn't work out you're divorced you're either together in a long-term partnership and if it doesn't work out you split and I, I am in love with my husband and I'm not uh, happy. So how might we find a space where we can um, work together to, to, to dialogue about our needs? And I don't feel like I have a lot of space for that culturally. So I'm trying to create a, a piece, a performance piece um, that kind of gets underneath that. I happen to be a straight woman married to a man. Um, but I'm conscious of, again, the heteronormativity of that. But I really wanted the piece to just capture long-term relationships, regardless of um, the coupling and the gender, uh, because I think you know these issues are endemic in same-sex relationships as well. I made the piece with an awareness that I really can only be who I am, which is a straight woman, but wanting an awareness of uh, really about uh, long-term partnerships rather than a marriage between a man and a woman. Yeah, no, and as I was listening to you, I actually 
and you were saying about people and experiences and dialogues, I was thinking of my mother. And the interesting thing there for me was she's an unhappy person generally and had six children, did the wife thing, the Catholic wife thing, mm-hmm. which was many babies as possible, sure. and then wound up really regretting it vocally. And those type of people in that generation in particular that had, had this root and didn't vary the root really could have benefited from people who are open and talking about it. And maybe that generation created people like you who are finding that level of expression as something that needs to be done. And hopefully people like me can listen to that as I just did here even briefly. And it did trigger some thought. And that kind of is interesting to me, just in hearing about the generational differences. Yeah, I think, you know, I grew up in an environment with, you know, two loving parents. uh, But part of the generational dialogue was built in conversations like, well, when you get married and have children, you'll know. I followed that path because that uh, was all I knew. And that was what I had seen. And, And granted, it's a beautiful path. However during that time never stop to say is this is this what i want is this is this who i am is this is this what i is this what i need and i, I really appreciate now there's a lot of younger folks who are getting married much later and i think cuz they are stopping and asking the questions but there's a whole generation i believe i'm in the gen x of you know uh, it's like what is that 1974 to Something. Something, exactly. (laughs) I don't have that trivia in my head. (laughs) Yeah, Jenna. That were kind of got swept into that um, cycle of this is, you know, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes babies in the baby carriage trope. I just wanted to create a piece of artwork that just shined a light on that to say, okay, well, here we are. I did that. Um, I need a space to talk about it because I'm accessing some anger, I'm accessing some rage, I'm accessing loneliness and sadness, um, all within a, a partner who um, loves me and who I love, but the, the complexities of marriage run far deeper than loving each other. Right. And so the solo aspect of it, I'm really curious about because it's almost probably therapeutic and healthy to even think about it and then feel a way to express it and using comedy probably makes it easier too uh, I, I'm presuming there can you give me a little background of the history of like when you started this piece what, what was the what was the genesis of the idea if you've had it for a long time or if it's a relatively recent thing and sort of what you're hoping people get out of it experience what you want the audience reaction to sort of be yeah I, I wait for topics to come to me and as I mentioned I have a 20-year repertoire that all match uh, kind of the rites of passage in my life. And I'm in my 40s, so the dances I was making in my 20s are different now than are in my 40s, which I assume will be different than in my 60s. Uh, So, you know, in my 20s, I made a piece about promiscuity, and I made a piece about being a Jewish woman falling in love with a non-Jewish man and reconciling our religious differences. I lost my father to cancer when he was quite... He was 59, and I made a piece about death that was a comedy. And then um, I made a piece about money and reconciling my relationship to money. And then uh, most recently, I I made this beautiful piece called Tense Vagina, an actual diagnosis that was about postpartum depression and post-childbirth urinary incontinence, which I really wanted to shine a light on a taboo topic that a lot of women don't 
talk about. And so I was really in the thick of motherhood. But now that my toddlers at the time when I was making that piece are much more independent, uh, my children are 11 and 8, I've been able to turn the lens and look a little less to them and start looking at my relationship more. For those folks who have been raising children the way I have, you, you know, you have what's called baby brain for such a long time. And then you start to get your regular brain back and realize, oh, wait, my marriage is in a terrible place <laughs> or just uh, an unhealthy place, I should say, rather than terrible. So I, it was probably about three years ago when I started to think about making a piece about marriage. And I remember this funny conversation with my husband, you know, because he's been very supportive and is very supportive of me as a performance artist. But I remember saying to him, honey, I'm thinking about doing a dance about marriage. And he said, do I have a choice? <laughs> and I said, no, but I'm just letting you know. <laughs> has, he, has he seen the final, he final work? He has seen the piece. Yeah, it premiered in October in Portland, Maine at uh, a wonderful organization called Space with uh, Portland Ovations as a co-commissioner. And he came for most, um, he came to two out of the four shows and was a wonderful audience member. And then we did this wonderful thing was we followed up one of the shows with a post-performance discussion with him and myself moderated by a therapist. That's fun. Which was amazing. And we had planned ahead of time that really the post-performance discussion was going to be for him to publicly respond to the piece with this therapist kind of moderating just in case all hell broke loose. (laughs) And he was really wonderful and really, he articulated how he could see pain and, um, and the loneliness and... Um, sort of the shortcomings, while also, you know, I've made a lot of work strides in the piece to make sure it's, I'm not just standing there and attacking my partner. That's really not what this is about. And then I'm coming to the table with 50% of my shortcomings. So we had a beautiful post-performance discussion. And, um, and then in terms of, you know, you asking what I hope audiences will get out of it, I've had several people leave and say, I had an amazing conversation with my partner on the way home. I left this, uh, seeing it with my girlfriends, and I ended up having, you opened up a good conversation with my partner later. I've also, I also had several recently divorced women in particular approach me after the shows and uh, say, uh, thank you for saying things that were left unsaid in my relationship. Thank you for showing me, you know, maybe where I fell a little short in communication. And those are all ways that tell me I'm doing my job as an artist and and tell me I'm doing my job as a performer, which is the whole point is, you know, to bring my own story forth through a performance experience. And to your point, yes, using humor as a portal, using humor as a protector, as a as a shell. I always, you know, make the analogy of like peeling the layers of an onion back and that humor allows me when I'm making people laugh. Um, they're able to open up and be more vulnerable. And then right after the laugh, there's something right underneath it that's much more real. And so I use laughter very strategically. There are a few moments that are just silly to be silly, but most of it's quite strategic to uh, make a point underneath. And I hope audiences use the laughter as a way to access their own emotions. It's a perfect way to do it because it opens them up, they get vulnerable, they kind of join you. Yeah. And then you have them and you can tell them what you really want to say, whatever your messaging is. And that's right. It's a great way I, yeah. to do it. I create a really sacred space. These are, uh, they tend to be hour long performances in kind of smaller black boxes intentionally. 
um, and I always break the fourth wall. So they're kind of just performance experiences where if uh, you're willing to come and participate for an hour, most of the time you're watching and there are some people where I engage with you either in a silly way or asking a question. However, I always say, if you don't like audience participation, sit more towards the back and I won't talk to you. But if you're more towards the front, I might. Just be open to engaging for an hour rather than I, I don't like to present it as a piece where you can just go and kind of check out um, and just sort of gloss over. Like this is really, I'm working hard up there and I'm asking you also to uh, work, but the humor helps ease comfort along the way. Right, and especially uh, it would be fun to even sit next to a husband and wife and watch them experience yes. a piece together. I yeah, would love exactly. to do that. Exactly. That would be fun. Well, you're playing for four performances at Dixon Place over the next couple of weekends. Correct. I'm, I'm coming this weekend. I'm very excited to see it. Uh, and I'm coming with uh, my partner. And I uh, look forward to uh, seeing what you have to say and experiencing your work for the first time, which will be exciting. Thanks so much for coming. So, Sarah, before we talk about where your show is going to be playing after it leaves New York City this month. Tell us a little bit about your consulting company. I'd love to hear about it. I read about it in your bio and and for artists who are listening to this podcast, what your firm does, what you do and how you help artists as they're growing their businesses or, or dealing with their issues. I would love to hear a little bit about that. Sure. So when I knew I wanted to be an artist and a dance artist, I also knew that that wasn't going to pay the bills. So I made a choice, a career choice, uh, right out of college, which was to go into arts administration. And I went into it very strategically thinking, well, if I'm going to be an artist my whole life, I might as well get paid to learn the skill sets that I could then go back and use in my own craft. Now, along the way, I have really fallen in love with arts administration as its own field and have also uh, really helped my work as an artist. So I worked for as an uh, arts administrator for several, for 10 years in, in different nonprofits. And then uh, 10 years ago, started my own fundraising consulting practice. I had had uh, mostly fundraising jobs in the 10 years that I was working for uh, New York City nonprofits. So my fundraising consulting practice works with individual artists and small to mid-sized nonprofits up to about five million in budget size, helping them build and execute fundraising strategies. I work a lot with individual uh, individual artists on what does it mean to build a fundraising strategy over uh, over a year, creating an annual program. Uh, I also work for with um, organizations. I work closely with boards of directors on what it means to be a good board of director. I train boards on how to ask people for money, uh, like uh, making the ask training. I also have a branch of my company that is a grant writing branch. So I do a lot of grant writing as well as have a, a full-time grant writer, Emily Thays, who works with me and uh, helps uh, artists at all levels uh, apply for grants. Um, I also teach a class uh, that I designed called Business of the Arts that is a soup to nuts class of what does it mean to be an artist and how do we articulate our form, uh, how do we market our form. You know, as you, we all very well know, to be a talented artist is wonderful, but you can't just have the craft without knowing how to sell the craft. And I think a lot of artists are trained in their artistry, but not so much in the administration of how to move their work forward. 
So I'm very passionate about sharing uh, my experience as an artist and how I move my work forward as well as how I articulate it. As you can see, I work really hard to come up with language to talk about my craft and I'm, I've spent a long time preparing that so that I can speak about it rather than oftentimes younger artists will say, well, tell me what your work is about. And it's like, well, and they really can't come up with language that allows uh, in particular non-artists to find a window in. So I do a lot of teaching um, artists on the language development because uh, it's incredibly important as both oral and written and gosh the list goes on I, I produce art I produce dance in Maine and do a little bit of everything but I'm very active in arts administration in terms of helping in particular uh, individual artists and small to mid-sized nonprofits in moving their work forward and moving their missions forward if uh, somebody wanted to get in touch and talk or hear a little bit more about what th their issue is and reach out, can they, how do they reach you best? Um, I have a website, sorlaconsulting.com, S-U-R-A-L-A consulting.com, which has um, a contact page. Uh, and you can also contact me through my artist web, web page, which is sarahjuli.com, S-A-R-A-J-U-L-I, my name.com. Not my name, but sarahjuli.com. <laughs> we got it, sarahjuli.com. <laughs> Um, so, Sarah Julie, I'm looking forward to seeing your show this weekend, and you'll be here uh, this month in New York, and I understand you have a tour planned, so if you could tell us a little bit about that, and then where uh, my listeners can reach out and find out if you're coming to a city near them. Yeah, I received this year um, National Dance Project, which is a very prestigious uh, national grant that only 20 dance artists are awarded each year by uh, New England Foundation for the Arts, and with that got a, a touring grant that uh, has provided me money to tour around the country to various presenters. So I have a really full touring schedule after New York City. First weekend in March, I head to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to a wonderful organization called 3S. Then I head to Burlington, Vermont in April. I'll be at American Dance Festival at uh, in Durham, North Carolina this summer, Bates College in the fall, Columbia College, Chicago, in um, in the fall as well and then I have bookings into 2021 as well and all of it's on my um, calendar on my website at sarahjulie.com well Sarah Julie thank you for stopping by it's been lovely to meet you I'm very much looking forward to the piece especially having heard your inspiration and and imagining your husband being there and watching it with me would be even more fun uh, congratulations on the piece and uh, if you have anything else to add please let us know. No, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, that's Sarah Julie, Burnt Out Wife at Dixon Place. Uh, I'll be reviewing the show as well as seeing it and looking forward to it very much. And now I'd like to share with you my review for Burnt Out Wife. I want to get married. Yes, I need a spouse. A recording is played. A woman sings those song lyrics without irony. Sarah Julie is flitting about in her bathroom. She is briefly jarred back to reality when she notices the toilet seat is up. This burnt-out wife puts the seat down. The song continues. I want to get married. That's why I was born. When Miss Julie announces, let's do some more heteronormative bullshit, you would be advised to put your slippers on and join her in this sanctuary. Described as a Pepto-Bismol pink bathroom, all the usual fixtures are represented. A bathtub in which to relax with candles, a toilet, a shower, and a clothing rack. A couple of dolls left on the floor, 
Obviously, the children were here earlier. The wife looks in the mirror to perform some heteronormative tasks. She begins plucking her eyebrows. Then she notices hairs in other places, remarking, That's unexpected, but you've got to do some maintenance. Further inspection will elicit a WTF. From the start, Sarah Julie is on edge. This burnt-out wife is going through the motions, but there is a lot on her mind. How does one feel after 17 years of marriage? A few thoughts emerge, such as bored, lonely, questioning, and curious. Things do get very serious in between the jesting about her life. What if I told you I didn't want to be with you anymore? That zinger portends the depths of analysis which will follow. No topic about the current state of affairs with her husband is off-limits. The show is real, raw, funny, provocative, and despite the comedic shield, introspective and genuine. The bridal dream of walking down the aisle is invoked. The bouquet is a plunger. This fantasy is soon replaced when reality hits. She tells the story of receiving a text from her husband. We need more toilet paper, he writes. Her response back? We need more postcoital cuddling. This pink bathroom becomes her fantasy showcase in which to ponder the state of her life, perform comic monologues with a hairbrush, and use dance movements to illustrate her feelings. Behind the safety of an imagined locked bathroom door, this burnt-out wife is brutally honest with herself and her audience. Her defenses are fortified, but vulnerability is always apparent. Since there is a real audience, rather than just an imaginary one in the mirror, Ms. Julie is able to engage in some dialogue with them. A question-and-answer section is used to debunk the childhood fairy tales of happily ever after. One man is asked if separate floors would be a better living arrangement if they were married. Definitely was his response. What If is a game which can be played in everyone's mind. In her show, Sarah Julie directly addresses those thought bubbles which usually remain unspoken. What if we could have a one-night stand while married to other people? A man answers, I'd do it, but I'd be a little troubled. She smiles and comments that, regardless of being troubled, he would do it anyway. Funny. Then the big ad-lib lands. She says, let's talk after. This one-hour show is a delightful blend of comedy and serious without ever dipping into negativity. The performance and the script stay focused on laughs despite the realness of the subject matter. You could imagine a darker version. The color pink, however, keeps the tone cotton candy sweet and playful. That base allows the wow moments to stand out. Sarah Julie has been creating and performing comedic dance theater for two decades. Her ability to hold an audience's attention with abrupt changes in style reflects that experience. The creative elements around her are excellent. Pamela Moulton's set design would make the pink ladies from Greece swoon. The costume designs by Carol Farrell are especially memorable.
disposable razor blades as fringe feels fashion forward. Never worry should you need a quick touch-up. A variety of enjoyments are scattered throughout this piece of performance art. My favorite section came toward the end. Miss Julie seemed to be holding herself together. A dance begins. This is what the little girl wants. This is what the mature woman needs. Her deliberate and repetitive movements tell the story of the passage of time and life's changes in direction. This burnt-out wife is paying attention to her cravings. Amidst all the zaniness, the message was loud and clear. As Sarah mentioned in the interview, her show will be touring into 2021, and the locations of the cities in which she will be appearing are listed on her website, www.sarahjulie.com. That's S-A-R-A-J-U-L-I. A highly recommended show. Very enjoyable, very different, and memorable. I'm down to the final five reviews for the month, three of which are musicals. The first one, the encore's presentation of Jerry Herman's Mac and Mabel. In 1964, Jerry Herman, Michael Stewart, and Gower Champion combined forces to launch Hello, Dolly! on Broadway. A decade later, they would bring Mac and Mabel. The show was a flop and ran only 65 performances. Despite the mediocre to negative reviews, the musical was nominated for eight Tony Awards, winning none. Long considered one of Jerry Herman's best scores, even by the composer himself, this encore's production enables a revisit to a show many had hoped would be revived and fixed. The songs are indeed excellent, and Rob Berman's orchestra showcased them beautifully. Amusingly, of the eight Tony nominations, the score was not recognized. The music is the only thing remembered positively today. Mac and Mabel is a semi-fictionalized tale of legendary silent screen director Mac Sennett and one of his great stars, Mabel Normand. In this telling, Mabel is discovered when she delivers a deli sandwich to the Brooklyn soundstage where Mr. Sennett is filming in 1911. The song, Look What Happened to Mabel, puts the audience back in time and establishes a fun tone. The tone is one of the bizarre problems in Mr. Stewart's book, which has been rewritten over the years. The show opens with Mac looking back after the talking pictures made him obsolete. He sings about when movies were movies to open the show. He comes across as an unlikable curmudgeon, but the staging and the song establish the period well enough. The show, however, is narrated by Mac, so the character is more of a memoirist rather than a participant in this tragic romance. Instead, boring exposition occurs. While not a direct quote, the feeling is, In this scene, Mabel will betray me and go to another film studio. It doesn't help that Douglas Sills and Alexander Soshi don't develop any real chemistry. I have to concede that the same criticism was made of Robert Preston and Bernadette Peters in the original. As written, the roles and the musical structure might be an insurmountable hurdle. Mabel died in 1930 from tuberculosis. Her drinking and drug addictions are chronicled here 
so the mood is somber and dark. In the original, the creators decided that Broadway audiences needed a happy ending. The musical ended with Mac imagining a wedding with the dead Mabel. That oddity was excised in this version, and perhaps audiences today can tolerate more darkness in their musicals. The show embraces Mr. Sennett's contributions to the silent film era, notably the Keystone Cops. Mr. Sill sings, I want to make the world laugh, which sums up his directorial style. When he gets the idea for filming his bathing beauties, the song Hundreds of Girls is the energizing first act closer. When Mabel comes in the room is the first number in act two. Is it a replica of Hello Dolly's title track? Definitely. Molly has not really been out of the story, but after years of film success elsewhere, she is welcomed back where she belongs. From this good time moment, the show descends into darkness or tries to and fails. There's a good song called Tap Your Troubles Away that probably should be dark and menacing to accompany the story being told. As staged here, it is a weird happy dance. The ballads in this score, especially Max's I Won't Send Roses and Mabel's exquisite Time Heals Everything are top drawer Broadway show tunes. Encores is usually a great opportunity to catch well-staged performances of forgotten shows or those with some flaws. This production was not one of the finest in this series, but nonetheless interesting from a historical point of view. The score is still excellent. The next musical in this year's Encore series is 1948's Love Life by Kurt Weill and Alan J. Lerner, which will be running from March 16th to the 22nd. I'll stick with the musical revivals and the off-Broadway production of Little Shop of Horrors. In 1983, I saw Little Shop of Horrors downtown at the Orpheum Theater about one year after it opened. The show was a smashing success and ran for five years. This sweetly diabolical musical was made into a film in 1986 and had a Broadway revival in 2003. With this production, Audrey Two is back where she belongs in an intimate off-Broadway house. The plot is well known for being extraordinarily fun and cheesy in equal measures. The genius of this incarnation is the massive dose of talent on stage, which supplies affecting newness, superlative characterizations, and inspired clowning. Fans of the show, fans of musical comedy, and fans of smiling will be entertained mightily. If you happen to embrace all three groupings, this version should really impress. Gideon Glick is currently playing Seymour. Every inch the nebbish, he is awkwardly timid and secretly pines for co-worker Audrey. Rescued as an orphan by Mr. Mushnick, Seymour works with Audrey at the failing flower shop. The relationship between the three is quickly established and effortlessly realized. When Seymour's newly developed plant makes this flower shop famous, this nerd's infatuation with the cult of celebrity fosters the bloody turn to the dark side. Mr. Glick is superb in the role. Tammy Blanchard portrays Audrey, 
the punching bag girlfriend of so many undesirable men on Skid Row. This role seemed permanently stamped with Ellen Green's original interpretation. Miss Blanchard is not the ditzy girl with some bad luck here. She's damaged, unhinged, and altogether wobbly. That characterization flows through her line readings and songs. The interpretation is darker, fragile, and infinitely heartbreaking. From this, Audrey, the ending is almost a relief. If that weren't enough to recommend this show, Christian Borel takes on the role of the dentist and other assorted characters. As always, he is a consummate clown. This time he sports a pompadour and an unhealthy addiction to nitrous oxide. The physicality of his performance is exceptional. The scenic design by Julian Crouch is niftier than I remember from the original and is very effective. A stage-wide bloody sheet and Bradley King's lighting create a macabre dentist office that's creepy and silly. Michael Mayer directed this truly memorable production. My only quibble is that the lyrics sung by the three urchins can get garbled up at the sound design and choreography. In a difficult period for the American musical, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken wrote this little show based on a science fiction B-movie. Their success led them to Disney and the creation of 1989's The Little Mermaid, which won Oscars for Best Song and Best Score. Their string of outstanding movie musicals helped keep the art vibrant and alive. An entire generation was influenced by their catchy tunes and lyrical wit. Little Shop of Horrors might be a touch darker in spirit and more ghoulishly fun, but like most of their work, the high level of entertainment quality is exhilarating. Little Shop of Horrors is being performed at the West Side Theater and has been extended until May 10th. Jeremy Jordan takes over the role of Seymour beginning March 17th. And now I'd like to tell you about the thrillingly original new play, Dana H. at the Vineyard Theater. Ever since I saw The Christians in 2015, I have made sure to see every Lucas Nath play since then. The variety of subject matter and structural surprises never disappoint. They are both thoughtful and thought-provoking. He is pushing plays into new territories and challenging his audiences to sit back, listen, think, and engage. Directed by his longtime collaborator Les Waters, Dana H. is something new, bold, curiously calm, and unforgettably harrowing. When Mr. Nath was attending New York University in 1998, his mother was kidnapped. He learned about this trauma years later. His mother apparently believed her ordeal might make for good subject matter. He brought Steve Cosson into the idea. Mr. Cosson is the artistic director of The Civilians, a troupe that specializes in investigative theater and the utilization of field research. Dana H. is adapted from a series of taped interviews between Mr. Cosson and Dana, Lucas Nath's mother. Rather than develop a traditional multi-character and potentially unwatchable drama, Mr. Nath brought his mother's voice to the stage. 
the entire play is largely Deirdre O'Connell sitting in a chair and lip-syncing to the taped interviews. Riveting is an understatement. You could hear a pin drop in the house. The play is organized in three parts, a patient named Jim, the next five months, and the bridge. Dana had a career as a chaplain in a hospice. She saw the moment of death in her patients three to four times per week for 20 years. She meets a patient named Jim who is recovering from a horrific suicide attempt. Jim is a member of the Aryan Brotherhood and has the tattoos to prove it. Dana Riley remarks that she understood his attraction to Satanism. When I was young, I played around with that. Right from the beginning, details are mysterious. Is she being witty? Is she embellishing the story? The words are from one person's memory of a hugely traumatic event. Is she a reliable narrator? That's for the listener to determine. Mr. Nath takes these interview tapes and rearranges them into snippets which suit his dramatic intentions. The tape edits are the entire narrative. We hear the beeps when storytelling is spliced together. The interview was heard, but not a character in the play. Dana sits alone and takes us through her ordeal. Her recollection is filled with mental and physical abuse. Police are unhelpful, either scared of the Brotherhood or chummy with it. Are those comments real, or are they a product of her mental state during an extensive incarceration with a madman? When the two go to a gun pawn shop, Jim admits that he is a felon and cannot buy the gun. Instead, he says, she'll buy it. Mr. Nath's incisive details frequently comment on larger societal themes without preaching. Miss O'Connell's mind-blowing performance is not to be missed by anyone who relishes perfection in character acting. The lip-syncing is technically phenomenal. Even recorded sounds are captured in her physical movements. The performance is essentially a solo pantomime. All eyes are on Dana. The depth of her emotions expressively register on her face. We are pulled inside her brain. The tale is frightening, which makes her inevitable survival a relief. The biggest mystery not explored in this play concerns Lucas the Sun. Where was he as all of this activity happened over a very extended period of time? I assume he knew of his parents' separation. That enabled Jim to weave his way into Dana's life before tormenting her in the classic sociopath fashion. Mr. Nath does not attempt to wrap up that question, nor does he even suggest whether he believes the details are completely accurate or influenced by PTSD. In letting Dana speak for herself, his absorption in his mother's memories become ours as well. Performances of Dana H. at the Vineyard Theater have been extended through April 11th. The next play I want to talk about was actually one presented to me by the artists who were putting on the production at the tank. They asked me to come and take a look and review the piece for them. Here are my comments on the play on how to be a monster. Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities came to mind while watching on how to be a monster. His 1987 best-selling novel satirized late 20th century New York society, 
he skewered the men as self-defined masters of the universe and their wives as social x-rays. Maria Luisa Mueller's play similarly uses sarcasm to expose the vapidity of another generation of mentally vacant couples. A television host is feeling F-A-N-T-A-S-T-I-C, let me tell you. He spells words for emphasis. As winningly portrayed by Adam Fisher, he embodies the Ryan Seacrest brand and smiles profusely. His energy level implores that there is no reason to be sad today. His IQ level, however, is questionable. Perhaps that is why he is a perfect choice to host a television show with no depth or importance. This play is definitely commenting on our viewing habits. This particular program is devoted to improving the society. The host lists a few social issues the audience should know about. Global warming, Planned Parenthood, and starvation in Africa. After that perfunctory nod to important things, the host then describes the game show to be played. Four couples will compete to be selected as the best couple. He reminds us that the best couple is the happiest couple. There are three judging categories, costumes, questions, and special skills or sad story. Both in studio and the television audiences are told their opinion is important. Vote for your favorites. Vote, vote, vote. The first couple to compete is Don and Tara. They are a happy couple who love to walk in the park, watch TV, and make french fries. The host then asks, is that correct? They say yes, and without a touch of irony, the host exclaims, amazing. Another couple responds to this question, what are your thoughts on starvation in Africa? The man responds that he wants to adopt all the kids who are starving. Quickly, the host moves to the next judging category. Ms. Muller is clearly lambasting the one-dimensional surface-level bubbleheads permeating the television airwaves. Since there are four couples and only three issues, the final question provides the biggest laugh of the play. The competing couples sit around a table, sipping drinks and chit-chatting. They are modern-day social x-rays, younger than Mr. Wolf's, but no less insufferable. When someone makes a comment that might even be remotely serious, they all laugh. The satire is present, but can still be enhanced. The script calls for many pauses, and director Federico Borlenghi stages the show that way. The flattened cadence unfavorably compares with the hyperactivity of the game show section. These couples could certainly be written as even more ridiculous caricatures. A monster is also a character appearing here and there. Who or what is the monster, and what does it represent? There is a mystery within this play which dismantles the pretenses so carefully maintained by these cellophane stereotypes. The end of the play provides an answer to the monster question, or does it? Maria Luisa Mueller seems to see monsters in various guises. Her observations are keen. The ending of this play is memorable and effective. Pacing and acerbic bite can still be further developed. On how to be a monster is not a primer which provides a roadmap. 
Our society's contemptible self-absorption is certainly a big target here, as is our ability to turn a blind eye. Important issues loom large and continue to be ignored. It makes you want to scream. The Tank is a nonprofit presenter and producer serving 2,500 artists in a thousand productions annually on their two stages. And the cost of tickets is very inexpensive if you want to try and see what new and upcoming artists are working on. For my final review of this podcast, the Transport Group's revival and update of the musical The Unsinkable Molly Brown. A few months ago, I was flipping television channels and bumped into the opening song for The Unsinkable Molly Brown. I had not seen this movie for 40 years, and it is still wildly entertaining. I was looking forward to the Transport Group's update to revitalize this 1960 musical theater chestnut. The 1964 film starred Debbie Reynolds as the indefatigable title character. History forever remembers her as a survivor from the sinking of the Titanic. The musical is based on her remarkable life story. Tammy Grimes originated the role of Mrs. Brown on Broadway and won a Tony Award. Debbie Reynolds was Oscar-nominated for her take on Molly. The character is bigger than life and allows an actress to sink her teeth into this plucky, feminist-forward lady. Beth Malone portrays her in this revival, and the role suits her just fine. This Molly has energy and drive for days. Dick Scanlon has rewritten the book and added new lyrics for this update. The adjustments are substantial. Only three lines of original dialogue remain. Less than half of the songs are from the 1960 musical. The rest are from the catalog of Meredith Wilson. An entertaining and slight biography now has deep messages thematically scrawled in big, bold letters. Act two grinds to a dreadfully dull halt. Ms. Malone is a terrific Molly, but like the fateful ocean liner, she cannot prevent the sinking. Directed and choreographed by Kathleen Marshall, the first act is largely fun and captures the spirit of this famous woman. The town's miners note, there is no curse worse than a woman anywhere near a mine. Molly eventually takes to the road and meets J.J. Brown. They marry and he discovers a gold mine. After becoming wealthy, they try to join the Denver social elite. As you would imagine, Plucky is frowned upon by the snobbish women. Prior to her high society quest, Molly is simply a great gal, tomboyish and non-judgmental. In the show's best ensemble number, Molly befriends some saloon workers, a term I use loosely, and they join her in the raucous song, Belly Up to the Bar, Boys. This is the indomitable Molly who asks, If I gotta eat catfish heads every day, can I have them on a plate just once? The transition to join the beautiful people of Denver, which is also a song, is not smooth. Husband J.J. is not a fan of croquet. I don't want to play a game I can't pronounce. Molly and J.J. will have marital problems related to their increasingly divergent views on life. She decides to immerse herself in culture, escaping to Europe and becoming the toast of society there. 
the transatlantic trip home, and her reported bravery on the lifeboat would endear her to Denver and forever keep her story well known. An interesting tale about a woman who grabs life by the horns in a male-dominated world is marred by slow pacing and preachy lessons. You can successfully tell stories about women who navigate in a man's oppressive world without being heavy-handed. My review of the new Broadway musical Six will be discussed on next month's podcast as an example of how you can do that. This Molly wants to be relevant now. How relevant? This line is plucked from today's headlines. Quote, if you don't vote, you can't complain when officials do not reflect your intellect. Unquote. There is nothing inherently wrong with the notion. It's just another thematic point loudly hammered home. The cast is very good, especially Paula Legget Chase in multiple scene-stealing roles. I cannot recommend The Unsinkable Molly Brown due to a very dull second act. At intermission, I was very engaged in the performances and the storytelling. Ideas were in short supply in the far less peppy second half. Plotting might be the best description. Colorado, My Home is a glorious tune which was sung by the movie's co-star, Harv Presnell, who created the part of J.J. on Broadway. Trivia buffs might be interested to know that this song was dropped from the musical after opening night and restored for the movie version. The song is left out here as well, likely due to the vocal demands. I understand this fine off-Broadway company wanted to create a new take on Molly Brown. In this instance, I prefer the old-fashioned version. Find the movie, make some popcorn, and discover the charms of this forgotten show. It's not a Meredith Wilson classic like The Music Man, but it is very fun. The Transport Group's production of The Unsinkable Molly Brown is running at the Abrams Art Center through April 5th. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. Next month, as I mentioned earlier, I'll be covering six on Broadway. We'll head out to Brooklyn for Company XIV or Company 14's newest burlesque extravaganza. This one's entitled Seven Sins. And I'm very much looking forward to the always atmospheric Axis Theater and their staging of Washington Square based on Henry James' tragic comic novella. If you have any comments or suggestions, I'd love to hear them. Also, if you are looking for me to review a specific show or would like to be considered for a featured interview, please send an email to theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for an email subscription to receive all reviews as they are published at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. Have a great day and happy theater going.